Well, all right. Let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of 2 Samuel. And we find ourselves here in chapter 4 this evening. Now, one of the things that we notice about chapter 4 is a very short chapter. We're only talking about a dozen verses here. And uh, it's it's an interesting story that tells us how we end up in chapter 5 with David uh, finally being... Uh, made king over all of Israel. And so what chapter four does is that it gives us the story of what opened the door uh, for the house of David to finally conquer the house of Saul, if you will. Now, uh, a book that I'm, I'm reading uh, currently is a, a book by a guy by the name of Thomas Brooks, and he's a, um, well, he was a Puritan. The book was written back in the 1600s, and a very interesting book. It's called The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and what I enjoy about the Puritans is that they were very practical in their approach to spirituality, that you read a Puritan sermon, you read a Puritan Uh, Bible study, you you read a Puritan book, and they had a way of taking taking that spiritual realm and just kind of reducing it down to what is it that you and I should be doing in our, our everyday life. And one of the things that I found intriguing, as you get towards the end, he starts talking about the characteristics of false teachers. And what what I found interesting about it is it it validated the words of Solomon. Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. And whatever the challenges were for the church in the 1600s when the book was written, they're the same challenges that we have today here in the 21st century. The the battleground is the same. The enemy is the same. The resources being made available to the church, they're, they're all the same. There's nothing new. And he began to say, this is what you're going to see with these guys. The first thing that he said is that they always cast dirt on faithful ambassadors, that you will find that the, the, the false teacher will find that person, that man or woman that is faithful to proclaim a, a pure gospel message. They're being used of God. They're, their ministry is being blessed of God. But these guys will come along and they'll somehow begin to nitpick and to find things that just you know, aren't quite right. And they'll begin to you know, cast dirt. And you shouldn't be following that guy. You, you need to be following me. He said that they are venters of visions of their own heads. They talk about, oh, God has shown me this, and I have had a vision this, and I've had a revelation that. And he says they're talking out of their own imagination. They speak as if they've got this direct pipeline of revelation from the throne of God to their mind. But oftentimes what you find is that it's their own head. It's their own ego that's doing all of the speaking. And then he said, they will pass over the weightier things of the gospel. They begin to focus on those issues that at the end of the day, they just don't matter. You remember Jesus, he said, look, to the, to the false teachers of his day, to the religionists of his day, he said, you will tithe from the herb. You, you will take mustard seeds, nine for me, one for God, nine for me. Imagine how tedious that would have to be to tithe out of the herbs. But then he said, you allow the weightier matters to go unattended. Love and mercy, forgiveness, 
the weightier things of life. This is what should have our focus. And then he said they work. The work is, is not to better men's hearts. They're not out to make you a better follower of Christ, uh, a, a more successful follower of Christ, a more committed follower of Christ. It's all about their agenda. It's all about their kingdom. It's all about their movement. And then he said, he said, they eye your goods more than your good. And at the end of the day, that's what they're after. They're out to separate you from your money. And I've told you before that early on in my Christian experience, I know that God placed me in these toxic church environments to give me an education about what not to be, about what church leadership is not. And I remember I was 19 years old. I'm a babe in Christ. I'm, 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 I barely know anything. And, and probably in many ways, I'm very carnal at that point. And I'm working at this church camp and this church camp was located on a, a private lake, and it was operated by a church that was basically controlled by a single family. And we've talked about how you don't want a single family in charge of a church. It's not going to lead to any place um, you know, that, that's going to be exhorting, right? And uh, you just open yourself up to a, to a lot of trouble. And this family that ran the church, they built a number of houses on the other side of this private lake. And I was working on the work crew, so you know I'm digging ditches and picking up sticks and mowing lawn and these kinds of things. And on one particular day, my job was to mow the lawn at around these, these houses. And so I'm over there mowing the lawn, and the guy that's over the work crews is kind of checking on everybody. And he came over on that side of the lake just to see how I was, I was doing. And he said to me, he was very impressed that this family had recently, the family that had built all these homes, had recently sold the houses back to the church. And he was just amazed. Oh, it just, it's so wonderful that the pastor and his family, they've just decided to sell these homes uh, back to the church. And I, I said to him, I said, well, what does the camp do with the homes now? And he said, oh, well, the family still lives in the home." And I'm thinking, okay, now, here, I'm 19, right? I'm fresh off of the turnip wagon here. And I remember thinking, here is an older, a more experienced follower of Christ, and he has no clue that this family is punking the church. I mean, look, if you want to buy my house, my house is for sale right now. If you want to buy my house and allow me to live in it the rest of my life, let's talk after the service, right? And it's always a sign of a false teacher that they are out to make merchandise of us. Now, I would add one more, and this is what we find here in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. They operate off of a belief that the end justifies the means. That it doesn't matter what your behavior is, it doesn't matter whether you lie, cheat, or steal, as long as we are moving the spiritual ball down the field, that is really all that matters. And what we are gonna see with David is that David is a man that understands that righteous goals must be accomplished through righteous means. You'll hear people talk about it's okay to sort of embellish your testimony. 
It's, you know, you come up with this testimony that you were a witch or you were a warlock, you know, and you're just wowing people with this incredible testimony of yours. And people are coming to Christ, even though your testimony is a complete lie. There are people that would say, well, look, look at what is being accomplished through the lie. That is not how God operates. It's not how God blesses. And it's certainly not how David operates either. So here is a story where a couple of guys are thinking to themselves, the ends justify the means, and it is not going to fly with David at all. Well, we notice now, Saul has been, Saul the illegitimate king, he's been taken out of the way. And now we come to the coup de grace, right? The idea of the kill shot, uh, the shot of mercy, this is the, the, the final blow. This is the final blow to the house of Saul. So we read in verse one that Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron. We covered that story last time we were together. And he lost heart, and all of Israel was trump, troubled. Now, you remember that the, the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, that he's a puppet, and that Abner, Abner is this terminator, right? Abner is this vicious warrior. And Abner was the unseen hand behind government. He was the guy that was propping up this, this very, um, you know, illegitimate king, Ishbosheth. And you remember now that, that Abner had killed Joab, who was David's general, killed Joab's brother. And Joab, in a very underhanded way, he put Abner to death. And so now news has made its way back to the throne, and the throne understands that the power that was keeping this guy on the throne, this guy has been removed out of the way. And so as a result now, he's terrified. The Amplified Version puts it this way. When Saul's son, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all of Israel was horrified. It's the intensity of the emotion that is sweeping over now these northern tribes. Um, the New Living Translation puts it, all of Israel became paralyzed with fear. This is the same word that was used in the story of uh, Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes this ruler there in Israel. He then begins to play these games when his brothers show up wanting, wanting food. And when the moment comes for him to reveal himself to his brothers, in Genesis chapter 45, we read that Joseph said to his brethren, I'm Joseph. Does my father yet live? And his brother, brethren could not answer him for they were, now this is our word that's used for horrified or troubled here in 2 Samuel. They were troubled at his presence. There are times where the news is so shocking that it takes away your ability to speak. You don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I don't, I don't know how to respond. And so here is the king. He has no idea. Now this is what he's facing. You look at this map, green area. This is held by the northern tribes and then the reddish, pinkish area to the south. This is the house of David. So the green area is the house of Saul. The pinkish area is the house of David. And then you notice all up and down their western front They've got these raiding parties of Philistines. So this is a guy now whose military is in great confusion. 
the strong man has been taken out of the way. And now notice what this man does as we begin to read in verse 2. Now Saul's son, son had two men who were captains of the troops. The name of the one was Benah, the name of the other was Rechab. And they were sons of Rimon, the Barathite. And they were of the children of Benjamin. For Barath had been a part of Benjamin because the, Benjamin, uh, the, the Barathites fled unto uh, Gideam, and uh, they had been sojourners until this very day. Now, it would appear that the house of Saul uh, filled all of the leadership positions in the military with Benjamites. And again, they, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, and so you would think, well, you want your own people in those positions of leadership. Now, we, we look at this and we think, well, why, why is it so important uh, that we know all about these two, what we're going to see become assassins? Why is it important that we know so much about their battle? Why do we, do we really need to know their hometown, right? Do we really need to know this? Is this going to be beneficial to us in some way? But what the author is doing is making it very clear that the actions that are being taken here are actions from, from the house of Saul. This is not the house of David. This is not David's plan. This is not David. Look, there's a lot of political maneuvering. There's a lot of political uh, wrangling going on here. Uh, but David is not behind any of it. The house of Saul is the one that's actually uh, behind all of this. And, and so uh, the writer is just making it clear. David does not have a part uh, in this uh, whatsoever. David, David is operating off the, an understanding that if God wants me there, well, I'm going to be there, and so I'll just submit to the timing of God. Whatever the will of God is for your life and mine, we don't have to make it happen. I have discovered over the course of my life that much of the time, it's almost like I'm just watching the will of God unfold before me. It's not some grand vision or some grand plan that I've come up with. I'm just trying to keep myself in that place where God can bless my life. And so this is what David was about. He's trying to keep himself righteous so that the plans of God can come to fruition in his life. And so we read then in verse 4, an interesting a couple of verses here, verse, verse four. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was, he was crippled, he could not walk. Now he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth, right? Now, it, it would appear that this is just thrown in here to give us an understanding of why Jonathan's offspring would not be considered a candidate for the throne. Why it is that Ishbosheth is kind of the last guy standing, keeping David from advancing to being king over all of Israel. Now, you remember that David was in Ziklag, and Saul and his sons are killed on Mount Gilboa. Message was then sent to the house of Saul, hey, the king and his sons are dead. And so this caregiver of this little boy 
obviously understands are the Philistines on their way here. I've got to run for safety. I've got to, I've got to flee from the palace, if you will. And so she picks up this little boy and in haste, she stumbles. Somehow she drops the child and somehow there is injury that's now done to his legs. They, they didn't have uh, orthopedic surgeons uh, back then. We got Brother Bill back there. Bill, if you would have been around, this kid might have been king, all right? And, uh, and so uh, he's, he's crippled. He doesn't receive care. And so he, he ends up not being able to walk. Now, he was five years old at that time. Now, David, you remember, leaves Ziklag and goes to Hebron where he is made king. And he is king over the tribe of Judah only for seven and a half years. And so that would now make this kid 12, 13 years of age. So he's a little boy and he can't walk. And so he's not going to be a genuine candidate to take over the throne. Now, he's mentioned here and he's gonna come back into the story as a much older person by the time we get, I believe it's in chapter nine, and he will become one of the most beautiful pictures of the relationship that Jesus has with you and I. He is gonna be an Old Testament picture of the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's gonna, he's gonna cycle back. Well, then meanwhile, we now get back to the story of the assassination. Now then the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, the Rechab and Benah, that they set out and they came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. They're, they're, they're under the, their story is we're here for supplies. And so we're, they're captains, there's leaders, this wouldn't seem to be an unusual move at all. They're coming in to get supplies. That was their story. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Benah, his brother, they escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And then they struck him and they killed him. They beheaded him and took his head. And they were all night escaping uh, through the plain. Now, again, this Ishbosheth, there is nothing honorable about this guy. This guy's kingdom is a wreck. I mean, his military is a mess, right? He's got these invading parties of Philistines, you know, making these raids, coming into their territory. He's, he's got this long civil war that's going on for seven and a half years between the house of Saul and the house of David. What is this guy doing? He's taking a nap. Really, is this the time for you to be just sacking out? And, and notice, he's relaxed. There's no security detail here. In fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, he tells us about this assassination so that when they once found him alone asleep at noon in an upper room, when none of his guards were there, when the woman that kept the door was not watching, but was fallen asleep also, because of the heat of the day, these men went into the room in which Ishbosheth, Saul's son, lay asleep, and they uh, slew him. So these guys now are running all through the night. 
you know, no doubt trading off the head from one air. You carry the head for a while, and now it's your turn to carry the head. And they're thinking that they are bringing a grand news to David. Isn't David going to be so excited when we present uh, to him the head of the very guy that's keeping him from being king? You see, these guys really do not understand the heart of David at all. And so they've done a very underhanded thing here, thinking that they're going to receive great reward. Now, we've seen this with David once before, and so we kind of got a good idea of what these two boys are going to be facing here in just a moment. So they show up in Hebron, carrying his head, and uh, saying, hey, here's the head of the guy that's keeping you from being king. Well, then notice in, in verse 9, but David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, and, they, and, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. He can, he can say that now, right? He had gone through some deep water. We've read Oh, the long year, 15 years, this guy is on the run. 15 years, this guy is an enemy of the state. 15 years, the government's trying to kill him at, at every turn. Lots of adversity in his life. Looking back now, he says, you know what? God has delivered me from all my adversity. When you're in the adversity, it doesn't seem that way. But when you get on the other side of the adversity, Oh, man, look at what God has done. So he's delivered me from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, and I had him executed at Ziklag. And the one who thought that I would give him a reward uh, for his news. So here are these two guys bringing this news, and David then says, I ever tell you guys a story about that Malachite guy showed up, told me he killed Saul. Did I ever tell you that one? And how he begins to tell. It didn't, it didn't end well for him. And boys, it's not going to end well for you either. Now, the reason why David never felt it necessary to defend himself is what did he say there in, in verse 9? As the Lord lives, who's redeemed me from, from all my adversity. I don't have to manipulate I don't, I don't have to somehow make something happen. It's not my grand design. I just got to keep myself in that place where God can, can bless, bless my life. And uh, so this guy showed up, told me he killed, told me he killed Saul. Well, that's now what's going to happen to you. Notice in verse 11. How much more when the wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? I mean, what a horrible thing to do to somebody. You stab somebody while they're taking a nap. And therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? And so David commanded his young men. And they executed them. Notice they desecrated the body. They cut off their hands and feet and hung them at the pool of, in, in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth. And they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now, again, David never felt a great need for him to defend himself. In fact, he writes in Psalm 62, I depend on God alone. I put my hope in him. He alone protects and saves me. He is my defender and I shall never be defeated. 
My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my strong protector. He is my shelter. Look, if you, if you have a mindset where I just always have to defend myself, you're, you're going you're gonna to be exhausted. You will just be exhausted in your life. Look, not everybody is going to like you. Not everybody likes me. Not everybody is going to praise you. People are going to criticize you. People will find a problem with you. I mean, would we not all agree if you look deep enough into all of our lives, you're going to find some problems, right? And so if you take it upon yourself, then I'm going to defend myself. Look, when you're in a situation and you are wrongfully accused, you're in a situation that, that you, you have been attacked in, in some point, and you don't, you don't retaliate, you don't defend yourself, you don't try and argue yourself into a position where you win the argument in that moment. Are you not emulating the Lord Jesus Christ? What, is, what does Peter tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about Christ? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's how you and I need to handle criticism and personal attacks that come our way. Lord, you hear what they're saying? I don't know, Lord. You, you just take care of it. I'm just giving it to you. You defend yourself. God's not going to defend you. But you turn it over to him, and he will defend you. And that's where David was at. Now, there is a criticism of David here. Thomas Constable points this out. Note David's inconsistency in his dealing with Ishbosheth's murderers and Abner's murderer, David's nephew, Joab. David succeeded at work, but he failed at home. He did not deal with the members of his own family as he should have, but he was more careful to manage the affairs of his government properly. One's home, not one's work, is the proving ground for church leadership. This is because the church is or should be more like a family than anything else. Now, you remember that he had these three nephews, these three boys. They were boys of his sister. And these guys, they were wired for sound. They were killers. They were out of their mind crazy. And you remember last time we were together that Abner killed uh, one of those boys. And then Joab thought to himself, last thing I'm ever going to do, I'm going to make sure that I kill Abner. And then he just kills Abner in cold blood. Right? He did to Abner what these two boys ended up doing to Ishbosheth. And so you wonder, well, hey, David, uh, now look, you took a righteous stand here. Why aren't you taking a righteous stand over here? And the reason is, is that this guy was a complete failure when it came to the control and the discipline of his family. He was a horrible father. He was a horrible husband. He had all kinds. And if you read his story carefully, this was not a happy, clappy life that this man was living. This is a man who had a terrible life. He had a terrible home life. He has sons who are murdering each other. He has sons who are raping his daughters. 
Hey, this was a horrible life that this guy was living. And much of the problem was is that this is a picture of a guy that does not give his entire life to the lordship of God. Now look, what is God's plan for your life? What is God's plan for my life? God's plan for our life is that we get saved at the cross and it's onward and upward from there all the way to the resurrection. God's will for our life is that it just gets better and better and better. We've got a variety of verses that speak to this. Second Peter chapter three, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In first Timothy chapter four, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Oh, you're growing onward and upward. Things are improving. You're getting victory. You're walking in the victory that God has for you. Philippians chapter one, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, all kinds of verses that speak about God's desire for our life is that we just, we start out as these baby Christians and we're kind of messing ourselves once in a while because that's what babies do. But then you, you hit adolescence and you're figuring some things out and you're growing and you're getting victory. And then you head into your adult spiritual life where you're strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus and you're witnessing the Lord bringing terrific victory uh, in, into your life. This is God's plan that there be this upward movement. Now we look at David's life. <laughs> this was David's life, right? I mean, he's got victory and then he has a couple of defeats and then he has a couple of victories and then he has another defeat. And it's just up and down and all around. And when you look at these defeats that came at, in the man's life, they were defeats that were rooted in a lack of allowing God to be God and to be Lord. This is God's plan and this is what we need to be praying for. So God, I wanna have victory. God, I wanna grow. I don't want to have an experience where I have a form of godliness, but I'm denying the power thereof. I want to see the power of God giving me victory in my family, giving me victory over my thought life. I want to see God give me victory. You ever, you ever have a, a friend, you know, you, you knew him 30 years ago, and 30 years ago, they had a pickup truckload of problems and, and issues, and, and then they just kind of dropped off. You never, you, you, you've, you've never seen them and haven't seen them in, in 30 years. And then you run into them 30 years later, and now instead of a pickup, they've got a dump truck full of problems as they're just kind of spilling their guts and telling you all the, all the things that's going on in their life. And you realize this is a person who has not grown one inch in their spiritual stature in 30 years. And they become one of these people who have a saved soul and a wasted life. And God not only wants to save your soul, he wants to redeem your life. He wants to redeem your mind. He wants you to redeem your family. And we need to take God at his word. He promises us victory and we need to begin to claim victory and submit to him the issues of our life. And so I think that as we go to prayer tonight, we need to be praying, oh Lord, 
point out those areas of my life where I am refusing lordship to come to the fore in my life. And Lord, we ask that uh, as we uh, leave here tonight that we would give serious consideration to make you Lord of every aspect of our life. We thank you, Father, for the example of David. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so raw in that it reveals just that gut-level truth about these men and women in Scripture, that behold, they are just like us, frail, broken human beings. But we thank you for your great grace that has come to rescue and deliver And thank God to change us. Lord, help us to be different. Give us victory over these long-standing issues that have crippled us for so long. Father, work mightily as we give you permission. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.